National Archives podcast series, The Leadership Challenge, presented by Isabel Siddons. In October 2011, National Archives formally took on the role of leadership of the archive sector. So it's one year on now, so it's a good chance to really reflect on what does leadership mean to the National Archives and to the archive sector, and what are the, the challenges in this leadership, how we're responding to them. So why did we take on the role of sector leadership a year ago? Well, formally, leadership of the archives sector was shared between Museums, Libraries and Archives Council and the National Archives. So Museums, Libraries and Archives Council, as the name said on the tin, was the strategic leadership body for museums, libraries and archives. It shared some of the archives work with TNA. So in very simplistic terms, TNA's end of the, the work was more about the technical specialist and regulatory functions. MLA's was more about general development, positioning archives better, and working in this cross-domain work, looking at how archives can work effectively with museums, libraries, and other cultural services. But when the government decided to have its bonfire of the Quangos, and MLA was one of the Quangos thrown on the bonfire, then there was, uh, over a year's discussion between government departments, DCMS, that MLA belonged to, Ministry of Justice that TNA belonged to, to discuss what was going to happen to leadership of museums, libraries and archives. So eventually, Arts Council agreed to take on museums and libraries, and the National Archives took on leadership, formally leadership of the archives sector. And um, under three very broad headings that when you read them, sound brilliant, but what do, they, what do they actually mean? I mean, I think advice to ministers on archives policy is probably the most um, specific and clearly understood. But the other two, leadership role for the archive sector and strategic engagement role, in a sense, those lines were there for TNA to um, define in, in the, the way it thought best and most effective. So TNA didn't just sit here in, in queue inventing what it meant. There was not only discussion with the DCMS and Ministry of Justice, Arts Council, but also a lot of discussion with the, the archive sector on what they needed from, a, from leadership, what would help them best, what would be most effective, how could TNA build on its traditional, uh, you know, slightly more focused leadership role to take on this, this broader and, and deeper one. And I think the good news was that, um, you know, the response came back from the archive sector that they recognised the value of leadership. The archive sector, you know, compared to the rest of the culture sector, is quite small and niche. So it does see the need to be, uh, you know, have a body that will help represent it better, help coordinate efforts, and really help the archive sector punch above its weight. I think also quite a lot of people in the archives world had understood the value of working closely with museums and libraries, you know, to give, give archives that much more stronger voice united front and also about sharing approaches across museums libraries and archives and for archives it makes a lot of sense because of course out there out, outside the national archives so many archives are part of library services or part of museums so to work closely with those two different types of bodies is absolutely what happens on the ground so i think a lot of people in the archive world felt we were losing something by having museums and libraries over here with arts council archives over here on their own was there, a, was there a risk that archives might get sidelined? Well, great big noisy arts council is talking about museums and libraries, pumping funding in, and archives are over here on their own. So that was another issue that we needed to, to think about in terms of our leadership. How would we continue to work very closely with museums and libraries and with the arts council to make sure that archives were 
the, the centre of the, the world of culture and heritage and not somewhere out on the edge where they could be easily forgotten. And in terms of who we're leading, I think it's a very complex and varied picture. So there's about 2,000 archive holding bodies in England and the, the interesting thing about them is the massive variety of them in terms of size, everything from you know, somewhere as big as the National Archive right down to archives that are run by volunteers or an honorary member of staff or one day a week, the, the kind of uh, collections they hold. Some of them collect very broadly across a geographical area, like a county record office. Others have much more uh, specific thematic collections, like uh, military history or history of men. They also belong to a wide variety of parent bodies. Local authorities run archives, businesses, charities, universities, and they get their funding from different sources as well, from their parent bodies, from charitable sources, from uh, commercial ventures. And where they sit within the organisation varies. They might be part of the um, PR and marketing team. They might be part of the, the legal department. So that means we can't sort of charge out and talk to the archive world and say, hey, here's one thing that you should all care about. This is one message we want to give you. That sort of one-size-fits-all approach just doesn't fit. What we've got to do as leader is listen very carefully to understand the different opportunities and risks facing different types of archives and think of solutions and support that will work in different circumstances. We've got to be very flexible and tailored in our approach, but at the same time try and keep that consistent line so we've got some clear priorities we're working to and we're not sort of spreading our efforts too thin. So it is, you know, quite a complex, complex sector to lead. And I think when we're, we're looking at the challenges facing the archive sector, I mean, I think I've already talked about the issue of profile, that archives are, you know, relatively small services. Often they're part of much bigger, larger organisations. So if you think of a local authority and, you know, the size of budgets that might be spent on adult social care, children's services, education, rubbish collection, then the size of the budget spent on the archive it's really tiny. So you can see there's a challenge there in archives within a big body like a lo local authority. How do they get senior managers to pay attention to them, to understand that although they're you know, a tiny, tiny little part of budgets and portfolios, they are very, very important and need support and need development uh, and you know, really want to do what the council need, needs them to do. You know, and, and there's an undeniable challenge at the moment about, around resources. All, you know, it's not just the public sector, but also, you know, businesses, charities, absolutely everybody is looking very carefully at resources. You know, budgets are being cut or squeezed or not growing. So, you know, that's a very real challenge, especially for archives where, in many cases, the budgets were so small anyway, cut to the bone. There isn't, there isn't any fat to cut. So how do they respond to the challenge to needing to do more in better ways with less money? Because the work around uh, budget cuts at the moment um, isn't, isn't about just slashing services. People who are running services are under pressure to still deliver really good services to their customers or their communities, but with less money. So it's actually a much bigger challenge than just trying to cut your budget by 25%. There's also a very real challenge for archives around audiences. Many archivists are trying to get their heads around what does the growth of online audiences mean? There's more and more materials digitised, so a lot of the kind of bread and butter research, if you like, is being done from people's spare bedrooms on their computer. On-site visitors, the, the trend seems to be that they're flatlining, so we're not getting more people through the door. What does that mean for us? Do we need to grow our on-site visitors? 
and also what's the profile of our audience? It still remains, that the on-site visits still remain fairly narrow, it still remains older, whiter, more middle class. You know, it's not really serving the whole population. In terms of kind of potential market for archives, if we were um, selling a product or a business, we'd be looking very carefully at, hmm, how can we reach out to all those other people who aren't buying our product at the moment? Digital records, again, obviously a very big challenge, especially for archives whose resources are limited, who don't necessarily have the technical expertise, don't have resources, they don't have that stuff to throw at it. And many of them feel they actually don't know where to start in preserving digital records. So they, you know, worried that their collections are going to sort of fall off a cliff. They're going to hit that digital black hole for the future. But at the same time as the risks and those problems, I think there's also um, opportunities. And you could have this horrible phrase printed on a T-shirt that opportunities are the flip side of the challenges. But I think, you know, sometimes that's a really useful way to look at it. So for all these challenges that I'd listed earlier, I think there's also opportunities where the National Archives, as the leader, can get in and kind of flip the discussion and the, over the other way and turn those problems into to opportunities. So firstly, resources are very tight, but that means that um, sort of senior managers in services and funders of services are very open to innovation, new ways of doing things. They're not, as I said, they're not just trying to cut services and, I don't know, reduce opening hours or reduce quality. They're trying to deliver really good quality services with less resources. So they're very open to new ways of doing it. So that's an opportunity for archives to get in the mix and say, look, we could really help here. We can, you know, do some work with vulnerable older people or, you know, we're, we're low cost. We just need this bit of investment or that partnership and we can deliver there. So it's a real opportunity to get in um, and show how, what we can do. Again, with, with audiences, the fact that the on-site visitors are sort of stable or even declining, does that mean there's more time, more days in the week that archives could use instead of just opening their doors for the kind of traditional purposeful researcher? Could they think about using their time in a different way? So they're using on-site visits more as a kind of special experience for people to come. The way they can get not just the information that they get from looking at the digitised record, but that real kind of experience of coming to a special place as an archive and that kind of whole excitement of holding that original document that, that has some meaning for them. So is that a new way of working with new types of audiences such as families or children or young people or, you know, the list could go on and on. So broadening out from the more traditional purposeful researcher. You know, and are there ways of really serving both types of audiences with a really good experience? So it's not either or, but it's both. And with digital work, solutions are being found, which include, you know, low-cost and very simple solutions. And archivists are understanding that it's better to do something, even if it's very simple, and a starting step, than to do the very complicated nothing, if you see what I mean. But I think the biggest opportunity of all for us to work with are the, you know, fantastic collections that we have in our archives across the country. You know, the sheer range of subjects and which are, you know, really... And, and the fact that people are really interested. You know, it's not only programmes like Who Do You Think You Are? But even, you know, if you look at younger people, the kind of whole way that retro and quirky is really cool. You know, there's almost never been a better time to talk to a wide variety of people about archives and show them not only what's in the collections, but also what the archive space is about, what that whole experience is about, this really weird and wonderful world that is the archive.
And along with the collections, there's also this incredible resource of very expert and committed staff in archives across the country who are really passionate about their collections and really want to share them with people. There's nothing more exciting than opening up your doors and letting people come in and see what you've got. And the, the work of the staff, which is complemented by a whole kind of army, again, of very, very committed and knowledgeable volunteers, archives for their, for their size do very, very well in terms of volunteer numbers and the, the hours that volunteers give to help develop the archive services. So I think, you know, that's a really extraordinary sort of asset that we can work with. So as I said earlier, we've spent quite a long time thinking about what will it mean to be leader and, and what are we trying to do. Our vision is that we're not going to be just passive and react to crisis to support the archive sector, but actually we want to look for opportunities to really help develop the archive sector, to use our expertise, to spot where there's expertise out in the sector, to, to help move it along. And I think the question that we're always asking ourselves is, how can the National Archives add value? What can we do as this great big expert national body with an international reputation, with direct links right into the heart of central government? What can we add that those little, you know, this little small archive over there can't do on its own. Okay, so, and again, I, I did a little bit of in-depth research by spending 10 minutes Googling and sort of, uh, for lists of words, lists of words that define leadership. So there were, you know, like 9 million American websites that tell you what leadership's all about. So rather than reading them all, I just uh, pasted lots of the words into Wordle. Does everyone know Wordle? And it produced this lovely very unscientific document with some of the buzzwords coming up for what, what is leadership, what do you need to be a leader. And as somebody in my department pointed out, those words also uh, fit very well with um, the National Archives values, which are integrity, which is in, up there, people, which I think is the bit on here about those people there, but also about communication, customers, there's quite a lot of people words in there, and possibilities, so sort of words in there about vision, I think fit that. So I think in terms of our values and what we are, actually we're very well placed to, you know, work as a leader. That's kind of how we see ourselves anyway. So then, you know, there were a lot, again, these lovely American websites give you lots of different definitions of styles of leadership. Everything from being an engaging and a democratic style of leadership where you, you know, do a lot of very close work with your followers, share decision making with them, right through at the other end of the spectrum where you're autocratic or my um, least favourite one, where the to toxic leadership, <laughs> which is where as leader you leave things in a worse state than when you started, which obviously the National Archives doesn't want to be at that end of the spectrum. But the one that, the, the definition that rang the, really rang a chord with me was a definition of entrepreneurial leadership. This was much more at the engaging or shared end of leadership than the autocratic. So it's really about the, the leader having this role to help organise a group of people and, and being very proactive. The leader's role to take on risk, manage risk so that the, the, everyone else can get on with their work, to be innovative, very responsible, and to work within a very dynamic organisation or, or very dynamic environment for the good of all. So I think that's really, you know, that really seemed to fit with me because what, what we're trying to do as leader is you know, look at all the skills and expertise out there in the archive world. It's not just about the skills and expertise in here, but it's also recognising that incredible asset of the expertise of people out there. So what can we do to, to help organise that and maximise the value of it, connect people in here with the 
archives out there? How can we create opportunities for archives to develop? And, you know, dynamic environment, I think, I feel like the world, especially the world of the public sector, has never been changing faster. It's incredibly dynamic. You know, the speed of change is, I think, almost terrifying for some people. But again, what can TNA do at the front of that change to make life a little bit safer and easier for archives that we're trying to lead? So our role as entrepreneurial leader, I, I always see it with kind of we're working on three different levels, three strata. So the first one is about creating the um, environment for archives to flourish. This is where our role in, for example, advising ministers on policy comes in and, and building key relationships with funders and agencies to help inform their work. So, for example, a big piece of work we're doing at the moment that you'll all have heard about is about the 20-year rule and the transfer of, of records and the opening of records after 20 years rather than 30 years. So part of that work has been with central government departments looking at the systems and procedures for the transfer of records to the National Archives. The bit of work that we're going to do next year is about what will happen to all the records that are transferred into places of deposit archives outside the National Archives. So how can TNA help make sure that system runs very smoothly, create that really good environment so all those archives out there looking after public records can get on and do their job? So again, you can see how you need a kind of body there at the centre, a national body, to help organise and coordinate that, help influence the, the policy and the directive that's coming from central government. And build another piece of work in creating the environment is to build relationships with other agencies. So I'd already mentioned how, you know, we've got museums and libraries over there with Arts Council, archives over here with TNA. So one of the very first things we did as leader was to develop a memorandum of understanding with Arts Council. And absolutely the driver for that is archives need to be part of this big picture. We need to work closely together. And by working closely with Arts Council, we really kind of amplify the voice of TNA and, you know, our influence to make sure archives are at the, the centre of planning around the development of culture and the art. We're not out on a limb. The second level we're working on is in our role as maximising risk and being the innovator. We placed as leader, it's easier for us to take some risks and, and be experimental than for a single archive service. That's part of our role. And part of it's about modelling new approaches, testing new ways of working. Some of that's in partnership with archive services. And some of it is absolutely embedded in what we do as the National Archives and the way we see it as you know, part of our role to be one of the world's innovators in managing archives. So it fits very well with that you know, very, very well-established role. And then the third level is actually working in partnership right on the, down on the grassroots levels, out in the regions with archives. Part of that's looking at training archives, developing networks to share skills. Some of it's about casework, supporting individual archives facing challenge or going through fantastic development opportunities and working very closely with them. So you can see it's kind of environment, um, modelling new approaches, and then really, really down on the ground working with single archives, those three levels all together. So we've had a year. What have we done, apart from a lot of thinking and talking about what leadership might be? Well, actually, we've done quite a lot, and I think it adds up to a big piece of work to build the infrastructure so that we can really operate effectively as leader going on from, from now forward. So one bit of work was about looking at the right people for the roles. So there was some internal restructure and engagement team. The, the team that I run was a new team that was established to fill a little gap in what we were doing and recruiting some different people. But I think it's always important to remember that the leadership role isn't just the work of the engagement team or my department, Archive Sector Development. It's a whole National Archives role 
So, you know, looking at that expertise right across TNA, building those connections inside the, the organisation so that we can do that job of getting expertise out to the right people in the sector. We've also done work on our strategic partnerships. I've mentioned the work with, with Arts Council, building that relationship nationally, and now the engagement team is going out to meet them, build very close relationships with them regionally and locally. Uh, we've also got a similar work going forward with bodies like um, CLOA, Chief Leisure Officers, and Local Government Association, Heritage Lottery Fund. And as we move forward, those sort of uh, circles of strategic partnerships will get wider and wider. And as I said, that's a way of us really amplifying the voice, getting more and more people in these agencies thinking, oh, archives, how do they fit in? What can I do for them? We've also refreshed our policy that is really our roadmap and our big you know, chart of what we're supposed to be doing. The World Coast for the 21st Century was written just before the change of government. So now, as we took on the leadership role, it was a good time to really review, does that policy still fit? You know, there's been so much change with the new government, but we felt that, yeah, the headline aims of the policy do fit, so the work on the refresh of the policy has really been tightening up the action plan. So it's very clear what work TNA is doing, what we're doing with partners, and what the sector needs to do as well. So that really is our um, you know, to-do list, in a sense. And also there's been an enormous amount of work on the accreditation standard for archives, which is really like the, almost like an MOT for archives. And it's a way that archives can provide evidence to prove that they're running their archive properly, preserving the records well, working well, providing a really good service to users. So it provides that really good holistic view of what an archive service is doing. And it's not just about passing and getting the, the standard. It's also a way of providing archives with a tool so that they can think, OK, we're really good on collection care, or we're really good on this bit, but actually this bit here we're not so good on. We need to put a bit more effort and a bit more thinking into developing that part of our work to strengthen the whole. And the way we developed the accreditation standard, I think, was very interesting. And we used the method of developing it as a way of explaining how we need to work as a leader. So we didn't just sit here at Kew writing something very lovely and inventing it ourselves. We worked in a co-creation process with the archive sector using um, workshops and a lot of online discussion and debate to create the standard. What we wanted was a standard that archives felt they owned and understood, worked for them, you know, mu much more sensible approach than just inventing something here and then trying to get people to use it. So we're now at the stage where we have the draft accreditation standard and we've got 20 archive services that are piloting it this year including the National Archives. And the idea is that the pilot will really, you know, show if there's any problems or issues or, or lumps and bumps that we need to iron out before the full standard's introduced next year. And next year, is when it's introduced, it's going to be very, very busy because we've got a lot of enthusiasm. A lot of archives are very keen to go through the accreditation process as soon as the doors are open. So we can sort of hear them coming. And um, another bit of our infrastructure that we built, we created a whole new suite of web pages for the archive sector. And this is somewhere where we've tried to put a lot of really useful advice, information, standards. Again, the idea is to say to the archive sector, look, there's really great stuff here. Come and look at this. This is, this is for you to use. It's a really, really great resource. And that's a very <coughs> dynamic and growing resource. We're sort of editing it, revising it, adding new stuff all the time. It includes news from the sector. And also what we're trying to do at the moment is generate some really, really good case studies to spotlight good work and um, 
you know, innovative solutions out there in the sector. Again, to underline that message that, yeah, TNA's got loads of expertise, but also there's lots of expertise out there in the sector. And, you know, look, look at ways that people are taking some of the standards or good practice sort of theory and really, you know, using it in real-life situations. So that's kind of our um, sort of new infrastructure that we've built. But at the same time, we were also continuing, you know, it wasn't all ground zero and, oh, we've never been the leader before. Because we, you know, as I said before, we did have an established leadership role. So the first year was also continuing some work that we'd already begun, which include things to support the sector, the very successful cataloging grants scheme, where archives can apply for grants to catalogue collections. And typically they get money which is probably enough to employ someone for you know six months ten months a year you know and really get a, a collection sorted out and on the back of that there's usually learning programs community engagement programs so it's you know that really great way of sort of bringing an archive collection to life and making it very useful and exciting we've also had our opening up archives traineeship which is funded with um, a very large grant that we secured from the heritage lottery fund so that's enough for 13 uh, recent graduates to have placements within archives across the country. And these are, are trying to open up new ways into archives, bring different type of young people to work in there. So they're not young people who would necessarily go on to do the um, archives MA. They're coming in with, with different interests and different career paths. And the good news is that because it's been successful in its first couple of years, we've secured funding for a further round of this. And at the moment, we're looking at very carefully at, okay, what's been the successes of that scheme? How can we push it a little bit further so that we can, you know, change the way archives are working, look a bit more challengingly at what this means for the archive workforce? As we know, the archive workforce is still a very, very narrow profile of people. How do we use something like opening up archives to bring a richer variety of people with different skills into the profession? Another really big piece of work was the digitisation consortium where we worked with the Archives and Records Association and the um, digital team here. So that was looking at how do you get the best deal for archives if they're working with one of the massive big commercial bodies like Find My Past or Ancestry. You know, they, those big guys can negotiate any kind of contract you like. And if you're a tiny little archive here, it's very hard to get decent terms. The other issue was, you know, the big commercial guys like to do great big runs of records. But there's lots of smaller bits and pieces of records <laughs> in archives across the country which were equally valuable to researchers but maybe wouldn't be so appealing to the big commercial guys. So if you build a consortium of archives, you can then get this... You know, if they've all got similar bits and pieces of archives, you've suddenly got a load of stuff that becomes very attractive to the commercial guy. You've also got a much bigger force to be reckoned with when you come to negotiating terms and conditions. So that has been a really successful approach, looking at digitising school logbooks. And the idea is to get through this piece of work and then look again at a further series of, of records that a big consortium like that can start to work through and what benefit does it bring to all the consortium members. So that's some of the examples of uh, work we've continued and brought through into our new context as leader, which I think it's, so it's not just about the kind of work behind the scenes, infrastructure, talking about policy. It's also about really practical stuff that gets money, advice, support, you know, real tangible benefits out to the archive sector. And you can really see how TNA is using its position as that big national body to add value. These are things that the archive world couldn't do on its own. It couldn't access the 
funding to create the cataloging grant scheme or, or the um, opening up archives traineeships. It can't have the same discussion with funders. So, you know, it's really TNA using its might and muscle to support the archive world to get somewhere it couldn't get on its own. So now we're moving into very exciting year two. So, yeah, we've got our infrastructure and we're really ready to go. So what's different? What's going to be, what's going to be new? Well, in my team, the engagement team, we've now got engagement managers. We've still got one empty post, but basically we've got engagement managers working across six of the nine English regions. So that's really exciting because they're, the, the, they're a bit like the, um, I don't know, the sales force going out from TNA to connect us with, the, with our customers out there. And the engagement team focused primarily on local authority archives, university archives, but, you know, still quite an important, important bit of the archive sector. So their work at the moment is to, to get out there in their regions, build relationships with the key archive services and networks out there, build relationships with the key strategic agencies such as HLF and Arts Council. And by Christmas, what we'll have done is had a really good understanding of the opportunities facing archives in all the different regions. Again, where can TNA get in, do some work to make a difference? And also the risks facing those services in general or specific services? Where do we need to go and do some specific casework to support, support those services? So already one of the engagement managers has spotted an opportunity around skills networks. In a couple of her regions, there's some quite, the archive services are quite well networked with different groups and you know, with all wonderful acronyms as they do. But they haven't been meeting very often, they've rather run out of steam. But at the same time, some of the archive services in that region have got, you know, real, there's real pockets of expertise. For example, the university archives in Yorkshire, some of them have got real expertise around digital preservation. They're very keen to share it with the rest of the archive sector in their region. The rest of the archive sector are very keen to get some advice and understanding of that area of work. So what we're looking at is how can we support the existing networks to work better with skill and resource sharing networks so it's a case of TNA doing what Lisa, the engagement manager there, what she calls a bit of heavy lifting to get, get that started. You know, create some agendas for these meetings, get the right people into the meetings, get the whole system up and running, and then hopefully, you know, in six months' time, the network will become self-sustaining and start to set its own agenda, and TNA's done the heavy lifting and could step back and focus on, on something else. Another piece of work we want to we're starting to focus on now and want to really move ahead after Christmas is looking at university archives. And, you know, again, they've got sort of different ways of working to um, other bits of the um, publicly funded archive sector. For a start, they've got roots into different sources of funding, academic sources of funding. And one thing that I've sort of understood quite recently is that if you're an archivist in an academic institution, you're probably on the academic um, staff roster. So that means part of your time is about thinking and research. You're paid to do thinking, research and innovation because that's what university academic staff are paid to do. So we've got archives with roots into different funding and staff who are thinking about innovation. And so again, that's you know, really interesting possibilities. If we can network them better with other parts of the archive sector, can we start to use some of that expertise, thinking, research, access to different money? Can we use that for wider benefit. And conversely, the university archives, by working closely with other bits of the archive sector, what do they get out of it? Do they get better networking across different collections and subject areas? 
Do they get roots into different kinds of users, communities, maybe young people who will then, you know, want to apply to that university, helping raise their profile locally? You know, what can you get by bringing those different bits of the archive sector together? So I think that's going to be quite a big and quite exciting piece of work we'll be kicking off after Christmas and hopefully will involve a range of other staff from across TNA, not just uh, the engagement team or TNA. And another piece of work we're, we're starting to move ahead is around TNA's role in supporting the sector to raise its profile. So it's partly through making sure the sector's got the right kind of evidence to make its case and knows how to use it. So, for example, we've got some training coming up at the beginning of December for local authority archives, and that's being delivered by Chief Leisure Officers Association. They've got an evidence toolkit called the Outcomes Triangle. So it's basically about, if you're a local authority archive, how do you gather evidence together to show your senior managers that you're really delivering and you're a really essential council service that can punch above its weight. So that's you know, a really solid piece of training that booked up almost overnight because local authority archivists saw it would be very, very useful to them. On a broader front, we're looking at the Archives Awareness Campaign, which is something that TNA and the Association of the Archives and Records Association, um, that's something that's about a decade old now. So it's you know, got very long roots into the sector but it may be slightly run out of steam. So we've been doing a lot of work with ARA and talking to the sector to try and really sharpen that up. And again, looking at what can TNA add as this big, very, you know, TNA gets an incredible profile in the newspapers. Every time, you know, every few months there's a front page story about records open at TNA, reveal this story or that story. So how can TNA use that relationship with the press and that position to really help archive, uh, you know, much wider range of archives raise their own profile locally and internally as well to the public and to their managers and funders. So we're hoping that we'll have, again, after Christmas, um, sort of news on the direction that we're taking the Archives Awareness Campaign to the benefit of the, the wider sector. I think I've already mentioned uh, the work on the 20-year rule as an example of our, our, policy our work on policy and implementation. So again, continuing to mould the environment for archives at the same time as doing this other work that's more about new approaches or, or specific casework. So that's a really, really quick kind of gallop through what's happened last year and what we're moving into now. Uh, you know, and I've obviously missed out a lot more than I've been able to include in that time, but I hope at least it's given some idea of what leadership means to TNA, and crucially, some sense that it's not just archive sector development team and engagement team, but it's something that staff from right across TNA, you know, are part of and have got enormous things to contribute for the good of the whole sector. This podcast was recorded live on the 25th of October 2012 at the National Archives, Kew. This talk was sponsored by the Friends of the National Archives. This podcast is copyrighted to the National Archives. All rights reserved.